Today's episode of the Andy Staple Show is brought to you by Game Time. Okay, folks, time for a little pop quiz. Do you think college football tickets are cheaper three weeks or three hours before the game? You can find the answer with Game Time, the ticket buying app that proves patience is more than just a virtue. It can also save you some serious cash. Game Time is the leader in last minute tickets. Pick your deal, see the view from where you're sitting, and buy in two taps. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the Game Time app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. So download Game Time in the App Store or Google Play, work that clock to your advantage, and score last minute tickets. Welcome to the Andy Staples Show, and the football season can officially start now. We have had our first what was that game of the year. We have had a great conference game in an intense environment. We've had some hot seat talk. Who better to bring on to talk about this than Nicole Auerbach, who... Nicole, I feel like we just did this on uh, SiriusXM on the ACC channel on Thursday. Yes, but you know, three hours together is not enough. We we must talk more. Well, we must. Big things have happened since then. Uh, that day we interviewed Scott Satterfield from Louisville, and we were talking about how tough it's going to be to go to Wake Forest. And uh, assuming that Louisville would give a valiant effort and, and fall by the wayside, mm-hmm. they just won 62-59 to in a game they once led 28-7. to yeah, it's um today was like one of those days where all of the things we thought we, we knew about different conferences were kind of flipped on their head. Like that was a Big 12 game. Yes, there was a Big 12 game. And remember Wake was supposed to be the second best team in the ACC? Maybe not. But the yeah. the game that that kicked things off that was the one that probably will reverberate the longest is Georgia losing to South Carolina in double overtime 20 to 17. South Carolina's down to their third string quarterback. Georgia's offensive line, which is supposed to be one of the best in the country, is not really blocking very well. Uh, Jake Fromm is not finding open receivers. He throws a pick six. Uh, It was one of those things where we have one of these games every season that reminds us, oh, wait, we don't actually know anything. We do not know anything. And I actually think that's part of the reason I like college football so much more than the NFL because weird things happen a lot more often in college football because people make the wrong decisions, the wrong choices, they aren't ready for things, or they play it over their heads because they're not aware that they're supposed to be intimidated by something. Like So many strange things happen because everyone messes up. Yes. And there was a lot of that. As 18 to 22-year-olds are wont to do. Now, you're writing a piece for The Athletic, which by the time our listeners are listening to this, they'll be able to read about the big decisions of today. We can start at the South Carolina-Georgia game with Kirby Smart, with the decision not to kick the field goal. Mm -hmm. They get a penalty trying to shift into another formation, and all of a sudden they can't kick a field goal. Hail Mary try doesn't work. They're in overtime. Kirby Smart keeps having this stuff come up. His end of game decision making keeps getting questioned more and more and more. It almost cost them against Notre Dame as well, um, which is worth pointing out. And obviously, you know, we've seen it in Alabama games, but he is great at everything about being a head coach except these moments, it seems like. And it was it was very frustrating. Because you also had Will Muschamp making some very questionable decisions on the other side in that late game settings, like kicking and attempting what? a 57 yard field. You don't think you should goal. kick a 57 yard field? Also, for someone the way, who's never made it over 50 yards, uh, let me, let me pile on to Kirby Smart there, by the way. You coached at Alabama in 2013. How did you not put someone in the end zone to field That's that a great kick? Great point. Great point. But. He does that. He goes for a field goal when he shouldn't go for a field goal. The other guy has a guy who's kicked a 55-yarder in the Rose Bowl. Set up for a 55-yard kick, you might as well try because, again, what's the worst that's going to happen in that point? You're going to go to overtime. Doesn't kick it. And then you get to that second overtime. He gifts South Carolina a timeout when they're scrambling, not even lined up correctly, 
uh, facing fourth and one. South Carolina has no timeout. Kirby calls a timeout inexplicably. So listen, Kirby Smart and Will Muschamp are former moments. teammates. Yes. So they, you're saying they learned this from each other? Just doing a solid. Maybe they learned it from Ray Goff or Jim Donnan. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it was it was not. It was one of those things where you're looking, you're like, okay, the kids playing this game, they're not getting paid to do this. They make mistakes. They're 18 to 22 year olds. These guys are making millions and millions of dollars and making very bad decisions. Yes. Speaking of decisions, another decision that was made in the off season that really has has hit home and been driven home the last few weeks. Mark D'Antonio made one of the more intriguing decisions of the offseason, I thought, when he decided that he was not going to make any personnel changes on his offensive staff. He was just going to move everyone around. He was not going to fire anyone, mm-hmm. not replace anyone, but just move everyone around. Michigan State got blanked today by Wisconsin, and Mark D'Antonio got asked about the offense, the decision to not make any any coaching changes on the offense in the offseason. And here was his response. Well, I don't think you talk I don't think we ask those questions right now. We're six, seven, seven games into the schedule. I think that's sort of a dumbass question, to be quite honest with you. All right, Nicole. I don't think that was a dumbass question. I think that's a very legitimate question after you put up a whopping zero points in a conference game. I think it is too, and it's all Michigan State fans are talking about. And it's been their frustrations for a long time. I'll tell you this, Andy. I first found out that Mark D'Antonio was doing that with his staff, just kind of swapping all their positions. At the coaches' convention, Pat Narduzzi told me. And I thought he was joking. Like, I, I did not think that. that He was like, this guy's going to coach this. He's going to do this, this, and this, and this. And the next day, Michigan State announced it. And I'm thinking to myself, is that really going to do anything? I mean, we were talking about an offense that was 126th out of 130 in scoring offense last year um, and 78th in the country in passing offense. And you're really going to say, oh, if we have someone, the tight ends coach coaching the O-line or this and that, that that's going to change things. So it's a totally valid question. It's a totally valid question because, you know, a healthy Brian Lewerke has masked some things. But what we saw against Wisconsin is just not acceptable if you're Michigan State going on the road against a ranked conference opponent. Like, you're asking way too much of your defense in that situation when you have six three-and-outs. Well, and and it's just going to get worse because it it doesn't get much easier for them. No. Now, listen, Mark D'Antonio has been fantastic there throughout his career. He's built a ton of goodwill. I, I don't. I wouldn't think he's on any sort of hot seat, but is he going to have to make those changes now? And my question to you, Nicole, is this, because since he didn't make them last year, we know how he feels about continuity and and not wanting Mm -hmm. to make wholesale changes on the coaching staff. Would he just say, oh, forget it, rather than fire staff? I mean, that's that's a fair question, too. Um, And we may not find the answer out to that until the end of the season, but... You know, I mean, knowing him and and his career and, like you said, the continuity, the loyalty, all of these things that are just kind of like trademarks of him, um, I think that's something that could be considered. I mean, it's, it's certainly something that all like Michigan Sports Talk Radio would talk about because otherwise, you know, if you're thinking along those lines, maybe that's why you don't make a wholesale change last year and you keep your guys because – you're not sure how much longer you want to go. And maybe that's part of it. Who knows? I mean, these are all theories at this point. We'll, we'll know at the end of the season. But it's definitely bizarre. And, and you could tell that the question touched a nerve because it's not the first time that's been asked. Right. And it's – look, it's a legitimate question. If yeah. you were actually scoring points, no one would be asking that question. But since you're not, you should pretty much expect it after every game when you don't score points. That, yes. that seems like a logical thing. It's, It's also kind of funny because it's like this existential crisis that Michigan State is facing now, and it's very similar to the one that Michigan was facing, and it's kind of like Wisconsin is breaking teams. They they are. They are, and I'm fascinated by that because I still still wonder, you know, when we get to see Wisconsin against Ohio State, will that defense look so impenetrable? My guess is no. My guess is Ohio State can out-athlete Wisconsin, sort of like they did a couple years ago in the Big Ten championship game where there were a couple matchups that they just exploited, and Wisconsin held on for as long as they could, but they just couldn't. 
they didn't have the people. And yes. I think we're going to see that. But against everybody else who doesn't have that kind of personnel, they're going to be in the right spot every single time. And yep. they just keep pulverizing you on the other side of the ball. So Right. I it, mean, that, that that's the impressive part. Like, I've been waiting for Jack Cohn to make mistakes. Or, oh, he you was know, fantastic Jonathan, today. He was he was great, and and that's what you're going to think. If someone's able to actually kind of contain Jonathan Taylor, oh, well, well can Cone win a game? Well, yeah, he can. And so you look at, like, the upgrades that they've made from last year's team, the last couple of years, quarterback, and they're just even more consistent de- defensively and really good up front. And now they're looking like, okay, this is that Wisconsin team we're used to seeing, but kind of on steroids. Yeah, they, they are – I thought – with last year with the the line all coming back and you know maybe they would be the best of of this run and obviously they were actually the worst of this run this team may be the best of this run which is saying mm-hmm. something because they've had some really good years in the past five years uh, let's talk we have not talked yet about the game that had everyone's attention most of the night because the result i don't know that, that really surprised anybody by the way vegas this is why they build those giant buildings in las vegas <laughs> <laughs> Florida LSU opened as a 14-point spread. It was yep. bet down to 13.5, and LSU won by 14 points. I don't know how they do this. I really don't. And it wasn't, it wasn't a blowout of 14 points. It was it, it was a wasn't. good game. It, yeah. Yeah, and Florida had chances at the end. I mean, it, it just, it's, it's fascinating how, how all that stuff plays out. I mean, to me, the team that I expected to win won the game. Um, they didn't quite look the way that I expected them the whole time because I do think the jokes about, oh, you know, did we really think that, you know, the, the defense that we'd be talking about today was really going to come from the, the Oklahoma-Texas game and not this SEC, you know, heavyweight fight. But I do think, you know, that LSU's defense, especially those DBs, I mean, they're, they're really good, and they made plays when they needed to. Um, and still, they only allowed 28 points to Florida. I mean, if a 42-28 final score is jarring in that game. Like, I'm still trying to process that. But I thought offensively, Joe Burrow and this offense just looked as terrific as we thought they would. The brand new, new and improved, it actually changed this year LSU offense is a lot of fun. And it's not what you expected but i like it so much better it's such a more viewer friendly product than what we saw at the tail end of the Les miles era and as ed orgeron went through these various iterations trying to to get the offense right this one is a blast to watch but i, I will say nicole having watched florida against auburn last week and against lsu this week and then watching georgia this week i would not be shocked if we saw these two teams play again in Atlanta. And if you take the Tiger Stadium factor out of it, it could be pretty fun. I, I think I think it could be another close game. Um, you know, we'll see we'll see if LSU can get over that Alabama hump. But whereas I thought Georgia, Florida was going to be a pretty easy win for Georgia when the year started, now I'm starting to lean toward the Gators in that game. Yeah, no, I think I am too, um, and and I do think that Georgia had been maybe a little bit overrated by us. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, I mean, we can have a whole separate conversation about preseason rankings and expectations and things like that, um, but but I do think that it is sort of shaking out. It's, it's actually quite a good thing that there's so many interesting teams in the SEC that are actually playing each other in crossover games and within the same division. So we're actually able to learn these things. Like we learned about Auburn last week and we've learned quite a bit about Florida in the last two weeks too. So I think, I I think you're right. Um, If LSU can get over that hump, I also think that the loser of the LSU Alabama game is not necessarily out of the playoff picture. We've seen that before where the team that didn't get to the title game was able to get in if their only loss is to, you know, a team that the committee respects. So it's going to be really fascinating how it shakes out. But I'm with you. I love watching this LSU offense. Uh, To me right now, the race for the Broyles Award, which goes to the nation's top assistant, is just between two coaches. I think it's between Joe Brady at LSU, offensive coordinator in his first year, and Alex Grinch, Oklahoma, 
defensive well, coordinator in his first here, here, year. Here's the problem. Joe Brady's not the offensive coordinator. He's the passing game coordinator. Steve Insminger is the offensive coordinator. So do you give the Broyles Award to Joe Brady, who is probably the one who deserves it, or? Yeah, I think so. I actually didn't realize that there was even that distinction. But, yeah, it, yes. Well, they couldn't – you can't hire the analyst from the Saints and make him your offensive coordinator. But what's funny is he's going to get offered – he might get offered head coaching jobs depending on whether he's yeah. McVay or not. Um, <laughs> but has he has he, he his also hand? at this point LSU probably has to make him offensive coordinator next year, probably at least once. And I well the Rams did play the Saints, so uh, I would go. think so. There's the handshake. It was a little controversial ending if you if you recall. So I don't know. Well, maybe but, before the game, maybe before. Maybe. Maybe, but but here's the thing: LSU's gonna have to pay him like two and a half million to be the offensive coordinator next year because everybody's gonna want him to come run their offense. So it it will be interesting to see how that shakes out. I do want to talk a little bit about Alabama because I feel like we've given Alabama short shrift this year just because all their games are so lopsided and so you know out of out of contention by the middle of the second quarter or maybe the beginning of the third quarter. Uh, they beat Texas A&M 47-28 on Saturday, and Tua did a human thing. He actually threw an interception, but he also threw a bunch of touchdown passes. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I still think that they have, and actually this is kind of hard to say, but probably the best receiving core in the country. I mean, it, it's Oh, it's not close. Because, well, <laughs> They're but, awesome. But I look at, no, I know, but I look at Justin Ross and T. Higgins together. I look at C.D. Lamb, like, by himself and consider, like, is he alone worth that? But no, it, they are, and they're all doing incredible things. They're incredibly fun to watch. I feel like we talked about them at nauseum last year because we hadn't seen an Alabama offense do these things. And yeah. now we're kind of just having that same we're conversation LSU about LSU. Yeah. yeah, it's just the new and shiny thing. Well, what, what is going to be funny is how the rest of the country will react to the inevitable 52-48 Alabama-LSU game. It's going to be so Making weird. fun of SEC defenses because ain't nobody stopping either of these two when they play each other. I don't well, think. Well, I, I, I want to be on a text thread with, like, Big 12 defensive coordinators during that game. Oh, like, who just they're going to have gotten- so much fun. Drug through the mud for years about never playing defense in that league and then watching that game. Well, and it's funny because you watch the Big 12 today, which is a great segue to the Red River game, which we needed to talk about anyway. But if you watched Baylor-Texas Tech, which the score was higher because it went to double overtime, uh, that wasn't a super high-scoring game. Iowa State-West Virginia was not a super high-scoring game. And Red River was not a super high-scoring game. No. And your decisions piece, maybe the biggest offseason decision is the hiring of Alex Grinch for Oklahoma because it feels like it's changed everything. Right. I mean, I, I think that was a big story coming out of there. Jalen Hurts had his moments, yes. He had that crazy play where the ball was, like, behind his back. It looked like a basketball play, like he had moved basketball around his back to try to get it away from a defender. But he also had some serious mistakes, Oklahoma went away from calling running plays for a long time for no real reason. And their offense kind of stalled. And the defense had to win them the game, had to be there and be impactful. Um, and and I just thought it was, it was something that we are not used to seeing. Obviously, they set some records in terms of sacks and tackles for losses um, and some benchmark numbers that they hadn't hit since 2011 or they tied for the most amount of sacks ever in a game. Um, which is just pretty crazy to think about because we're so not used to seeing that. And I think that's why it's so impactful because we've seen, obviously, Heisman Trophy quarterbacks come out of this program, and we've seen offenses that look good enough to win a national championship, and they are always, always short because of their defense. And now it looks like they've got both pieces. Well, and the other part of it is it's not just the sacks. It's not just the tackles for loss. Last year, you'd run quick game against Oklahoma, and you'd have a receiver catch the ball two yards from the line of scrimmage. And then he'd break a tackle and he'd run for 20. Right. This year, that's a two-yard gain, three-yard gain. They are tackling those guys in space, and it's something they just couldn't do. These are, these are the same people. You know, Oklahoma know. didn't go that's get a whole the, bunch of new players. That's the crazy thing. Yeah. That's, so, that is the crazy thing. Like, it is the same defenders, but they can tackle now. Yeah, it, it is – 
it's very interesting to watch because that offense, I mean, the way they got C.D. Lamb open, when Texas knew that was who they were going to most of the time, was brilliant. The, the little flea flicker thing was incredible. Because mm-hmm. I was like, okay, at this point, Texas is, has got to put like four guys on CeeDee Lamb because there's, there's nobody else that's, that's making plays right now. So Oklahoma Andy, is Andy, definitely going to go Andy, to him. They're putting four guys on him. Like four I know. And the flea flicker made them all go away. I know, but there are other plays where there's like six guys that should be stopping him and are not stopping him. He is unreal. I love watching him. He's got to be the strongest 190-pound dude in America. Yeah, some of, some of those tackles he broke, it just it, it defied insane. the imagination. Insane. That's so. what I'm saying. Like he alone, like I'm putting him up there as like the uh, comparing to like Alabama's receiving core. Like he's worth more than one body there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard though today when we saw again Devonte Smith having a big day and then Jalen Waddle taking yeah. you know a little tiny I, I a little know. flare and turning it into a long touchdown. And you're like, wait, Jalen Waddle's like the fourth option. <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's fair, it's fair. I just I gotta go to bat for my guy, C D Lamb. Who, oh, by the way, I'm all in on the emoji like Heisman campaign or whatever for him. Just anytime yes. he does something of a little emoji of a CD and then like a, a sheep or a lamb. And a sheep. Like, I, oh yeah. All all into it. The question is how many well, Heisman voters all know what CDs are, but how many how many <laughs> emoji using people know what a CD is at this point? That's true. It um I was actually surprised that it's actually an emoji that it's an option true i guess people <laughs> still use dvds so maybe you can they use have it for they that have too. some old school stuff like they have like an old school telephone like a cord true. phone or something. they got some old stuff in there yeah i see back in the day you used to you, you know you go through people's cd wallets like when i met my wife the first time i was in her car i had to i had to go through the cd wallet to make sure we were compatible so when I found like Van Halen's greatest hits and that she was the only other person who bought the uh, Mo Thugs Family Ghetto Cowboy CD single in the whole world, I knew she was the one. Yeah, now you just have to guess. Seriously. Or you're like, or like uh, can I borrow your phone? Spotify. Yeah. Yeah. Can, yeah, can I borrow your can I borrow your phone? I gotta check your Spotify playlist. Yeah, I promise I won't go through your text messages. Just <laughs> need to make sure that you're listening to compatible music. Yeah, it's not like that anymore. But it is funny and I I just think I just think he's incredible. I would not be surprised if he is on our Heisman straw poll this week. Which is interesting because obviously his quarterback is going to be on our Heisman straw poll this mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, but, split some votes. But you're right about that. Uh, the the I would argue that C.D. Lamb was more important to the Sooners today than Jalen Hurts was. Maybe it's not that way every week, but it felt that way today. Yes, I would agree with that. Well, it, we do have to talk about some some big news for you, Nicole, tonight. This was well. First of all, our our our, our good buddy Scott Satterfield led Louisville to its first conference road win since 2017. They are super super ahead of of schedule. Yes. Yes. Super ahead of schedule because if if you watched Louisville play last year, they were probably as bad as you will see a team play, and and they just would quit when they got down like 10 points, and then they would get throttled because their coaching staff had quit on them. Well, tonight you're watching that game – and you send out a tweet, and you got a big response. Okay. A very so, important response. So there is a lot of crossover between college football world and The Bachelor. And on our own staff, we have a fantasy league that I'm the commissioner of. And we are, as, as pretty much a full staff, I would say there's consensus on this, obsessed with the runner-up from this past season, Tyler Cameron. So he played at Wake Forest, and then he played at FAU. Was it, was so, a QB at Wake and then a tight end at FAU, right? Yes. Um, and he he's done some interviews where, like, I don't think he's ever had a winning season, like dating back to middle school. He's been on some bad teams. Oh, he had a winning um, so, season about nine months ago. Well, yes. Now his life is great. But he was like he he was at FAU the year before Lane Kiffin got there. Like he he hit everything right before things got good. Like he left Wake Forest before they got good. Anyway, so I saw a photo or video or something circulating from before the game 
of a Wake Forest player wearing a sweatshirt in a way that I've never seen anyone wear one, which is just the hooded part over his head and ears with the drawstrings. And then there's nothing left. So like it basically just cuts off after the neck. And so I retweeted that and I said, this seems like something at Tyler J. Cameron three would do because he wore crop tops at FAU, like like Ezekiel Elliott level crop tops, like really cropped. Well, anyway, well, remember, he has Ezekiel Elliott level abs, too. So oh, there, there's yeah. good reason for oh, this. Insane. I sent them to you after we were discussing this because I, I would never like wear a shirt if I look like that. <laughs> I felt like you needed to see them. So immediately. I get a response from him and it says Wake Forest is ahead of fashion trends. Boom. Day is made. Potentially my year. Potentially my year is made. Here's the only problem. Wake Forest did not win the game. And this was but the he team we had. still go we, there. And he is now my close personal friend based on this Twitter interaction. Well, I get that. But we, we had pegged Wake Forest as the second best team in the ACC. The ACC turned itself on its head this week. And I will give you props for another prediction you made last week. You said that Miami would beat Virginia on Friday. Still can't believe I was correct about that, but yes. So, again, the presumed favorite in the Coastal, and we were talking about, oh, if Virginia beats Miami and they go beat Duke, they're going to win the Coastal. Well, guess what? The Coastal is now in chaos, which is really where it should be. We, we really just need Georgia Tech to win some games it shouldn't, and then the seven-way tie is still in play, just saying. Listen, but- we, are, we are not <laughs> far away. I don't think we're that far away from a North Carolina-Clemson rematch oh. in the ACC title game. Well, okay, so here is the question. and I guess With we'll our other all- new best friend, Sam Howell, by the way. That's true. He is our best friend as well. But, okay, here is the question, though, about who you would say would be the second-best team now. You've got... Zero. Uh, no, okay. Wake Forest is the only team with one loss. We're just ignoring Clemson, obviously. They're number one. Um, Wake Forest is the only team with one loss overall. And right. then you've got Louisville at four and two, Duke, Virginia. Well, and then you can go all the way down to Pitt and Virginia Tech as well. But could you argue that it's Louisville right now? They did just go to Wake and win. I'm not sure I'm ready to do that yet because it's still so fresh in my memory how last year ended. But, yes, you could. And if they keep getting better, Scott Satterfield should be the national coach of the year. Yeah, I'm just blown away that he's doing this with all the same players as last year. I'm actually really happy for those players because I can't imagine how miserable that was to go through last year with Bobby Petrino and that staff. And then to have this total 180 and actually get to enjoy winning some of these games, pretty awesome. Well, before I let you go, I do need to ask you about a staff that has not quit, absolutely has not quit. Uh, they were they were playing against a team that, that should have beaten them, but USC and Notre Dame. So the recruits have bailed on Clay Helton. The fans have bailed on Clay Helton. But they were still fighting mm-hmm. in that game. They gave up, a, you know... It gave up a lot of long runs early. Notre Dame built a pretty big lead. But it, USC had an onside kick to get the ball and, and have a chance to win at the end. And they, they didn't get it. Notre Dame got it and, and ran out the clock. But, I mean, they're still fighting, but it feels like the window's closing on Clay Helton. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because when you take a step back and you're like, okay, they're 3-3, three and three, and they had a brutal stretch to start the season, that's kind of what we thought that they would be. But so many people have kind of written him off. Um, it, it's fascinating because of the dynamics of leadership there and the fact that you don't have a permanent AD yet. You're still embroiled in that um, that that admissions bribery scandal with with some of their Olympic sports. There's just so many other moving pieces there. Um, but you would think that if anyone who is involved in that decision making did watch that game on Saturday, you are thinking like th- these are these are players playing hard for their coaches still. And, and I think that that's something that I'm always interested in when I talk to ADs around the country. They can see that. They can totally tell that. And, and there's a big difference in, in, you know, in throughout a game or throughout a season when a coach is on the proverbial hot seat and how the, the team is responding to that. So it, the question is just like, I don't know who, who makes that decision. And well, are they is watching? Is it Carol Fult? Because we know she's looking around. 
Well, I don't know if, she if, was, if you saw uh, the looking game. Looking at some other stuff during <laughs> that game. Right. Carol Fold is the new president at, at USC. She was the chancellor at North Carolina who got brought in to clean up that mess that, that was left after the, the academic scandal there. So she's the new president at USC. She was on the sideline at Notre Dame tonight. Uh, the camera caught her, uh, well, an official walked by, and uh, this official was apparently thick in all the right places. That was one of the funniest funniest clips that one I, I saw it because Brady Quinn shared it and said that uh that Notre Dame seemed a little or sorry that USC seemed a little distracted <laughs> it was just dying this official walks by and her head <laughs> immediately just snaps around like and then it's expect- the full look up all look up and down the whole deal it's just an incredible, incredible you expect it from look. a construction worker not a university <laughs> president but I loved it hey look I loved it go for but- yours Carol she was a little distracted. I don't know how much she was paying attention to the players fighting hard for Clay Helton. Who knows? Well, Maybe she's she, multitasking. She's probably going to have to sign off on that decision. But this was this was not a a fire the coach at the airport situation. No. They they are they're still fighting, and they can win every game remaining on their schedule. And that's what makes this so interesting. Yeah, I would agree. I also think the Pac-12 is all over the place, so I'm not writing anybody off just yet. Actually, you know what? After I saw Oregon's offense clicking where they're playing everybody and, and finally have everybody healthy, I'm going to strike that that Oregon game off. So they can win five of the last six. Which I don't think that's going to be lot. good enough. That's, well, yeah. I mean. It's eight and four. Yeah, it just it, it depends on who's making the decision and when they're put in place and how this all works, too. But I, I agree with you. It's not acceptable. It's not what they want. But it's just like at this point, to me at least, it's a little hard to predict. It, it is very hard to predict because they've got higher AD for I, well, at least I think they do. Uh, the last I'm trying to remember the last coach who got hired before the AD was hired was Hugh. Well, Freeze? Jim Harbaugh was. Ah, yes, yes, that's but true. But that was in part because the interim AD had a particular relationship with him, and he stayed a while. His, yeah, there was, that there situation was, no was similar to, mm-hmm. Yeah, that situation was similar to Texas where Mike Perrin was brought in as the interim, but really was the AD for a while and wound up hiring Tom Herman. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you got to go back to, to when Hugh Freeze was hired at Ole Miss after Pete Boone got, and Houston Nutt got fired on the same day. And then later they brought in Ross Bjork. So right. I, it, it, is, it is really weird to do any sort of firing or hiring without an AD. USC search keeps dragging on because that – yeah, that's a that's a hard job to fill. And I was talking to somebody about this the other day. It, it, it's not just, you know, you're an AD somewhere, you, you make a million dollars a year, you live in a big house, and so now USC is going to give you a raise, but your house is going to be half the size. And then you've got to <laughs> hire senior staff who you, you're not going to be able to give those big raises to, really. They'll get about mm-hmm. what they make now or a little more, but their houses are now going to be a third the size, and they're going to have to commute an hour. Like, I just don't know how sexy a job that is. Well, let's let's spin that forward a little bit. I know it's a conversation for another time, but how appealing is that football job? I think the football job is appealing because of the, the level of player you can get relative to everybody else in the league. You can have the best roster every single year. And so I think there's a bunch of coaches out there who would jump on that. The AD job, not quite as sexy. I would agree with that. I, I just I do wonder in terms of where it ranks among some of the other blue blood top tier jobs from a football perspective. We might we might find out. We might find out this offseason just what type of caliber coach they can get. So I guess we'll get that answer soon. I have a feeling, Nicole, we will be having this conversation in the next few weeks and not just about that job. This is true. Hot seats coming, upsets are happening. It is finally, really, college football season. Nicole, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Anytime. We will be right back with Seth Emerson, our Georgia beat writer from Athens, where apparently the sky might actually be falling. We'll be right back. Thank you so much for listening to the Andy Staples Show. Remember to subscribe, tell all your friends, Rate us, review us. We love five-star reviews. We're going to start reading the five-star reviews on the podcast. My favorite one so far 
is a five-star review very early on, and it said, is a podcast, which I feel like we've, we've done what we've set out to do here. But yes, please feel free to elaborate more than that. We love it when you give us feedback and, and we'll make the show even better with your ideas. But thank you for listening. Subscribe, rate, review, tell a friend. And also, please subscribe to The Athletic. That's where I write. That's where great writers like Nicole Auerbach write. And it really is the best sports writing on the planet. We cover everything. And I realize I'm a little biased, but we have the best college football coverage in the country. Really, on the planet. But this is really the only country where they play college football. So that's all that really matters. But it is wonderful. We have... Bruce Feldman, Stuart Mandel, a whole team of great beat writers. It is a truly wonderful reading experience. You can get it for the cost of a latte a month. If you want to get 40% off your first year, you can subscribe now at theathletic.com slash Andy Staples. That's theathletic.com slash A-N-D-Y-S-T-A-P-L-E-S. We go now to Athens, Georgia, where the biggest upset of the season so far took place. South Carolina beats Georgia in double overtime. Seth Emerson, you are our Georgia beat writer. You have issued some, some warnings in the previous few weeks and pardon the pun. It feels like they came home to roost today. Yeah. Georgia has been a slow starter, and even they have admitted that against Notre Dame, a game that ended up going down to the wire, even though it looked like Georgia in the third quarter was going to pull away. And even against Tennessee, uh, Tennessee, Georgia ended up winning that by a lot. But people may remember that that game, Tennessee actually had a lead in the first half. And I was actually sounding more warnings about the defense, specifically the pass defense, and this idea of havoc rate versus – leaving defenders on an island. And that did happen again in this game. South Carolina got a big chunk yardage touchdown. But the offense was really what the takeaway was for a lot of people today, that it it was just really stagnant. It seemed like the same run play up the middle was being called a lot. Uh, Jake Fromm, three interceptions, one of which was definitely his fault, another one, Probably his fault, another one just off a of receiver's hands. They muff another snap. I mean, so much blame to go around in this one. And uh, Georgia fans assessing all that blame. Is the pick six the, the one that is Jake Fromm's fault? Yes. Yes, he, he just should not have thrown it. He was apparently trying to throw it out of bounds. He, he didn't want to you – know, he was backing up. And he was being pressured back, and he was smart enough to know that he didn't want to just throw it in the ground, and he didn't want to just throw it straight out of bounds. So he was trying to put enough air on it. The problem was he did it in such a way that he underthrew it, and the uh, South Carolina defensive back, whose last name I can't pronounce. Um, Israel Mukwamu, yeah. who is 6'4", by the way. Yes. Massive yeah, he, catch radius. If he, we, we, yeah, he was able to just – Fielded as a center fielder, basically. He had time to plant, catch, run. And uh, if you had him on your fantasy football team defensive league, uh, you're sitting pretty because he had three interceptions today. (laughs) It it, it is crazy to think that – and I I saw what Kirby Smart said after the game. The offensive line did not play well at all. This is supposed to be the strength of the team. They're supposed to be able to ride that group to whatever they need – but they were not good today. Well, they've had an injury at, at the left guard spot, but they, they – so Solomon Kinley came in, and he's not quite 100%, but they're supposed to be so good at all five spots that they they should be able to incur one injury and, and have four of their top five and still be in good shape. You know, I think a lot of people would also get back to the play calling and say you're supposed to use – that as a strength and it, it's Georgia's not playing five on five most of the time when they're running the ball those five may be really good but other teams are stacking the box because they know that that line is really good and they they have to have numbers advantage and yet Georgia still seem to be running the ball into the line rather than getting creative and end arounds and misdirection and 
just different kind of. Or I don't plays. know, throw the ball. They they well, did they throw were, it a bunch of times, but their receivers don't get separation. Times. Yeah, yeah, 51 times, but there there wasn't a separation. I mean, this gets back to there, there was blame all around. Jake Fromm did not have a good day. The receivers are not good at getting separation, and a lot of that does come back down to inexperience and youth, and that is something that – that gets back to something that I was preaching about over the summer. They This team lost Nicole Hardman and Riley Ridley to the draft as well as – Isaac Nauda. And Isaac Nauda to the draft. And then Jeremiah Holloman was dismissed from the team after a really out of the blue, unexpected uh, incident, domestic incident over the summer. And so they lost a lot of that experience. And every Georgia fan said they weren't really worried about it because they still had all this talent, like George Pickens, Dominic Blaylock. Uh, they brought in Lawrence Cager from Miami. And, and they're right, there is a lot of talent, but some some of the inexperience is knowing how to get off the jams and how to how to get free when the safety comes on you to give you double coverage and, and whatnot. And they weren't getting that. And then also the the pass blocking wasn't as good as it has been. So let's talk big picture because I think back to 364 days ago, Georgia mm-hmm. lost by 20 in Baton Rouge, looked as bad as they could look, mm-hmm. and then straightened it out. Is it possible that happens this year, or was that all of the warning signs coming to life and teams will now have a book on on how to beat Georgia? It's still very possible, Andy, because they don't have to play Alabama or LSU. They do have to go to Auburn. We'll see about Auburn. They certainly looked mortal last week against Florida. They have to play Florida, which – yeah, well, that 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 game in Jacksonville is always looking tough harder than, and harder every week. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, especially with the way Georgia played on Saturday. But it, it's so it's not impossible. When I looked over Georgia's schedule this year, and I said my my prediction was eleven and one for Georgia's schedule, and I said I'm going to go with Auburn being the loss. I just I thought that there were enough deficiencies, enough questions, I should say, not really deficiencies. There was never a glaring weakness, but enough questions that I said. You know, I don't give them a loss. I don't know if they're a twelve and zero team. There, there was a time though, like before the Notre Dame game, I think, where I I spoke to, I was talking with a colleague on the beat who I won't name because he won't want this out there. Where he actually volunteered, he's like, you know, I'm not sure this is a really good team. I think this is a two or three loss team if they had a tougher schedule. And I, I said, you know, I I kind of see that too. There's there's just too many moments of just not running over the other team and and you know they 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 beat Vanderbilt but not so much I mean 30 to 6 was the final but not so much that they could empty the bench in that game and boy Vanderbilt looks not good then they beat Murray State and Arkansas State very you know handily but that that is what it is and the thing about the Notre Dame game is you look back on it and you're like okay yeah there's no shame in beating Notre Dame by 6 but a it was at home and you know, Notre Dame played them very closely. It it was the first sign, and and Notre Dame played very well in the line of scrimmage. And Kirby Smart wants his teams to be good on the line of scrimmage. And Tennessee during sometimes, but especially South Carolina on Saturday, had their way with Georgia on the line of scrimmage, and that's what's a really bad sign. I think Georgia can turn around. I could see them running the table. You know, Oklahoma did it two years ago. They lost to Iowa State at home. And, and they end up running the table, and, and Georgia played them in the Rose Bowl, obviously. Georgia's got to get better on the offensive line, and they got to open up the offense a little more. Teams are scheming them up too well. They've got a little bit – they've got to be a little bit more creative, probably a lot more creative on offense. So they've got a game that should be a palate cleanser against Kentucky next yes. week, and then an open date before they play Florida. Will we see a different offense – or not a different, you know, obviously they're not going to throw out the playbook, but a different looking offense when Florida gets to ja- or when Georgia gets to Jacksonville. Yeah, and you're right. This is the time, I think, if they can do it, if they can change course, or if they've had the plays and they've just been unwilling to use them, this is the time you have to do it. Um, you know, Kentucky looks pretty beatable. And then you've got a bye week too. This is the time to really start opening up the playbook. It's it's been a kind of a constrained offense. It's been a you know they they throw to the outside and run to the inside a lot. 
Um, they need to mix that up a little bit. They need to throw more to the inside. It, they And, you know, the other thing they really need to do, Andy, is they need to go tempo. They went tempo yeah. against Notre They've Dame. They've been really good when worked. they do that. Yeah, and I don't understand why they don't do that more. And Jake Fromm's comfortable in it. Uh, they were very comfortable in it last year when he did it. Jake Fromm didn't, for all the talk about Georgia as this pro-style offense, and they are, you know, kind of old-timey kind of thing. Georgia doesn't line up with a fullback or anything. And Jake Fromm did not play in a pro-style offense in high school. He played in a spread. And so he's comfortable in an up-tempo, spread-it-out offense. And and they probably need to do that a little more. And in, in this RPO game, which Georgia does do the RPOs a lot, that's not incompatible with running the ball, which is what Kirby Smart and James Coley apparently want to do. No, actually, R is the first letter in exactly. RPO. Exactly. And I, whether they will do it, I, I don't know. But there's going to – this is a real come-to-Jesus kind of moment, I think, for Kirby and his offense. And I guess also for his in-game management because he opened himself up again on Saturday to criticism of how he handles that with the decision but let, let's be honest neither yeah. kirby smart nor, nor will muschamp covered themselves in glory no near the no, end of regulation and, and honestly i thought will muschamp's decision was the worst one he kind of just uh, got the, away trying with to it. kick the 57 yard field goal yes yeah yeah when when you know what were the percentages on that trying <laughs> to kick a 57 choices. yarder versus making a fourth and two what how is or the percentage Punting would have been better than, than trying that 57-yard field goal. Yeah, and, and all it did was set up Kirby, and then Georgia gets downfield. And I understand running a play when you have 13 seconds left and no timeouts because even if you get tackled in bounds, there's time to get – it's not for certain, but there's time to get to the line and, and spike it and have another play. But they were going to run it to the sideline anyway. With eight seconds left, man, that was, that, that was getting, I think, a little bit greedy. Um, I think – I think kicking the field goal, and a lot of people agree, was the, the safest thing there, especially when you have Rodrigo Blankenship, who can make a 55-yarder and has in his career. Yeah. That doesn't that mean bizarre. it for certain. Like, th- this is becoming the new, you know, they, they shouldn't have done the fake punt against um, right. Alabama. I, I think in both cases, the decision was defensible. Uh, the fake punt was – I don't want to get all into that again, but the fake punt was <laughs> we, defensible we for some reasons, but the execution yeah. of it was terrible. Uh, yeah. The decision not to – the decision not to kick the field goal with eight seconds left just, you know, it, it, at that point I think you've got you've to try it. You've got to kick the field goal, and, and you saw what happened when they didn't do it. All right, Seth, I'm going to give you a chance to be a negative Nancy and a chance to give some people some hope. We will start on the negative. If this revealed some greater truth about Georgia today, how does the rest of the season go? Uh, I would go back to my prediction of a loss to Auburn. Uh, I, I think Florida becomes tough. I think that's the worst-case scenario. Now, I, I Nine and three. Yeah, I don't know who predicted they would lose to South Carolina other than the most diehard, you know, Pollyannish South Carolina fan. So I don't know where the other loss is to be the most negative. Like, I, I don't know how they lose to Kentucky. M- Missouri, maybe, but, you know, Missouri's looked you – know, can, you, can you lose to Missouri at home? I don't know. Um, Georgia Tech doesn't look that good. Texas A&M, very uneven. Um, I mean, the wheels could completely come off and you could see – Auburn, Florida, plus Texas A&M or Missouri. But I, I think in a way, it, this South Carolina game helps to avoid something like that. I do buy into the noon theory. Yeah, I, I tweeted this out during the game, like, oh, the dreaded noon start. And people are like, don't blame this on the start time. Like, well, I'm not blaming it on the start time. I'm just saying I have covered a lot of these noon games where these kind of things happen. Um, I'm not sure anybody else is going to sneak up on them anymore, but they have to correct some of these other flaws to avoid losing to Auburn and Florida. Um, as for the hope part of it, yeah, they could still run the table. I mean, there was a reason they were the number three team in the country. They've, they've got Jake Fromm. They've got DeAndre Swift. That offensive line still has a lot of talent on it. That defense still has a lot of talent on it. I think, Andy, you, you go back to this, I was still more worried about Georgia's defense than its offense. Its offense looked terrible today. But 
its offense looked good the first five games. Offense just needs to get back to that, open things up a little bit, and then the defense needs to make some improvements. And the defense didn't play that bad in the second half today either. All right, Seth Emerson, you're going to have a very interesting week. I bet you didn't think your Kentucky week was going to be that exciting to cover, but there'll be a lot of questions to ask. It's to the Ramparts. It's uh, Kirby, or have you, are you studying up on game management theory? And uh, are you going to turn over your offense? And, uh, you know, yeah, Jake Fromm, what's up with your interceptions? Is, there's, is the offensive line overrated? Many, many questions. And it, it does get to the point of being a little bit overkill. I'll leave you with one stat, Andy. Through this point of year four, six games into year four, Kirby Smart's record at Georgia 37 and 11, Mark Rick's record 37 and 9. Wow. And no Veron Haynes for Kirby, though. So, mm, well, you know. But, you know they, they, yeah, no, no miraculous win over Tennessee. There was a miraculous loss. But I'm not saying Kirby <laughs> Smart is the next Mark Rick. You know, but Mark Rick was a very good coach for a while. Uh, and But Kirby Smart, I think, just needs to make some adjustments. He needs to learn some stuff. And, and maybe this is a chance to do that. All right, Seth Emerson, watch out for falling sky in Athens, Georgia. Have a lovely week. Thanks, Andy. That's all for today's show. If you want to hear more of us, subscribe to The Athletic, and you can listen to our Friday bonus secret to happiness shows. If you want to, subscribe to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash Andy Staples. That's theathletic.com slash A-N-D-Y-S-T-A-P-L-E-S. This Friday, we'll get you ready for Ohio State Northwestern on Friday night. And we'll also get you ready for a suddenly intriguing Florida-South Carolina game and a big one at night on Saturday, Michigan and Penn State. It's going to be a fun week. Mm-hmm.